Hello everyone and welcome to the Better Watch Horror Podcast. I'm your host Patrick. And I'm Celeste. And as always, we are here to share our love of everything horror. And true crime. First podcast episode for 2024. Let's get excited after our little break announcement. (laughs) We're kicking it off right now with uh, an Aussie true crime that is unheard of for me. I'd already heard the story and everything and... I was like, I think this is a good one for us to cover and get out there for everyone. Mm. It's not like what I meant by unheard of, like I didn't know. Because, yes, I didn't know what it was, but the state of the crime that we are talking about, it's like I've never heard of this happening in Australia. I've only seen it in movies. movies. Yeah. So today we're talking about the Graham Thorne tragedy, which is a eight-year-old boy who got kidnapped and murdered once his family had won a lottery. Yeah. That's crazy. It's a crazy story. The real crazy story, and we're going to go through the whole thing. Yep. Exciting. Well, not really. I still, it just makes me angry. Like every true crime makes me angry. But at least this one that we're covering, at least this one has like an answer. Yeah, I got an answer. And it's not unsolved. And it just, (laughs) it, it makes me laugh. And we'll get to that point where it makes me laugh. But without further ado, shall we get into it? Hope everyone had a good New Year's. I don't know why I went silent after that. <laughs> Whatever. I don't know. I'm being awkward now and that's true fashion to us, isn't it? Stop laughing at me. Because you're doing weird arm movements. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know why. I'm just excited to be back. Okay. Excited to talk about stuff. Let's do it. You want to start? Sure. Oh, is it my dancing? Yes, stop. <laughs> Sorry. I'm just excited. Okay, let's go. Okay. So in Sydney in the late 1950s, the Sydney Opera House was being built and to help fund the building, the government, I'm assuming it was, um, made a lottery with the grand prize being £100,000 because back then Australia used pounds instead of Australian dollars. And it was just before we started recording, I looked this up, we didn't change to Australian dollars until 1966. So it was like 15 years after or like 10 years after this. Six, Six years after this. Doesn't matter. It does matter. You, I just said in the late from? 1950s. Yeah, but when the crime happened, oh, it's six yes. years. Yeah, I didn't sorry. say that though. Oh, sorry. Apologies. So, which is worth $5 million today. Mm. Um, and so in 1960, Basil Thorne is living in Bondi with his wife, Frida, and their two kids, Graham and Belinda. And he spent three pounds on, the, on a ticket for the lottery and he won. So then on the... 7th of July, it was a Thursday, Frida sends Graham off to go to school and he walks down a few streets to an intersection where their family friend Phyllis Smith would pick him up and take him to school with her two boys. Yeah. But this morning she turns up and he's not there. Yeah, so he she um, sends one of her kids to go look for him while also going to Frida's flat to say, oh, to probably see if Graham was there and then... Yeah. Obviously, Frida opened the door realising something was wrong and called the police straight away. Yeah, which is good on her because a lot of people are like, oh, now we'll go look for them first. But she was like, nope, I'm calling the police. He's missing. Something's wrong. So Sergeant Larry O'Shea uh, is the first on the scene when the kidnapper calls the flat. So Frida gives him the phone and he is told that this guy has Graham and they want £25,000. By 5pm or else he'll feed him to the sharks, which is such a... Weird thing to say. Yeah, it's such a movie term. Mm. But also they, um, 
they noticed that this guy had like a European mm. accent, which they thought was really Yeah, odd. couldn't really, didn't really speak good English. Yeah. So after this ransom phone call, O'Shea calls back to the Bondi police station for reinforcements and our next detective, uh, Lloyd Noonan, is the next one to arrive on the scene and the police wanted to try keep this quiet. Didn't mm. want the public to know because, you know, the more people that know it could make the kidnapper want more money for ransom or do something stupid or, you know, th- they just want to keep it quiet. But reporter Bill Perry, he got a tip from someone that, you know, this kid had been kidnapped and there's this ransom. So he rocks up to the Thorns flat and wants to know, like, information. And I think it was... I think it was Detective Noonan yeah. who answered the door and said, if you have any compassion for this family, you'll leave. Mm. And the uh, reporter said that he could just hear like crying in the background from uh, Frida, which is understandable. Her oh, kid is very missing. understandable. So then the story is eventually broken that afternoon in the uh, Daily Mirror newspaper uh, from their crime reporter, Bill Jenkins. And Frida was driving around with some other detectives and sees a poster from the newspaper on the side of the road saying like, you know, boy missing ransom, 25,000 pounds. And she just loses it because th- they didn't know that anyone else knew. They thought it was going to be kept quiet. So then the police kind of freaked out. This is why the media is so shit. Yeah. Though. Cause they don't care about they, people's feelings. They just want a fucking payday. That's all they care about is being paid. Yeah. Don't give a shit about anyone. And then unfortunately, Basil, Graham's dad, was away on business in northern New South Wales at the time. So as he arrives at the airport to come back home, he's alerted that uh, Graham's been kidnapped and there's this ransom for him. So he goes straight to Bondi Police Station to make a statement like over the radio and on TV. And I was like crying when we were watching the uh, little documentary thing because he is just a broken man. He's like crying and he's trying to keep it together. Mm. And he says, all I can say is if the person that's got him is a father and has children of his own, well, for God's sake, please send him back in one piece. And then he was like, I can't, I can't do anymore. I can't talk anymore. Yeah. And for this time in Australia, kidnapping was unheard of. It Like even now would be fucking unheard of. Yeah. You feel like you don't really hear of it that often anymore. Mm. Um, so um, everyone was on board for where this kidnapper could be hiding Graham to the point even police enlisted the help of some criminals to help out because it. I think, as you were saying, it's just the thing that if people hurt kids, like, they're just hated. Yeah. Like, like everyone fucking hates them. Yeah. Like, I think I saw something on, like, Facebook or Instagram the other day where this guy, I'm assuming it's in America, who's already in prison, mm. he's killed, like, six child predators that are in prison because he, he already had a death sentence for whatever he did but he was like i'm helping clean the world like he's like i'll keep killing all of these child predators and people that hurt all these kids i don't care <laughs> is it like i've heard a thing but is it true that like the people who hurt the kids they're like separate, in a separate to part. everyone else because if they were in the same like prison cells as everyone they'd be dead Yeah, there's a few, like, documentaries that I've watched of people, like, in prison and they say, oh, yeah, like, you know, I could have been a murderer, a drug dealer, whatever, but I will kill anyone who's hurt a kid. So it's lucky that they're not in this part. It's like 
horror movies <laughs> like um, killing kids off is like unheard of. Like it doesn't really happen mm. because everyone hates it. Yeah. Is it the same with people hurting animals as well? Yeah. It's like elderly people, kids and animals are off limits. Yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, not really cool, but <laughs> I, know yeah, what underst- you meant. <laughs> I hope everyone understood what I meant. <laughs> And because this was happening, the government wanted to make kidnapping a capital offence, which would mean whoever this was would get the death penalty. They also awarded £5,000 for any information on the whereabouts of Graham, and the newspapers also added £15,000 for the same information. And information was coming from everywhere, but most of it was so vague and very misleading. Yeah, because they had like all these tip lines and everyone was saying, oh, I've seen him over here, I've seen him here, I've seen him here. And unfortunately, they had to go through every single one. Yeah, because some were like somewhere in Sydney, but then others were in Adelaide, some were in Melbourne. Like they were all over Australia and they're like, we have to check every single one. And unfortunately, they were pretty much all wrong. Mm, Because you think of the 60s, they don't obviously didn't have what we have now. So this would be like 10 times quicker to probably find people. Yeah. It would still be a pain in the ass. Yeah. But as we'll get to in a second, like there's... It just astounds me. Yeah. Is that the word I'm looking for? Probably. That, like, they had to go to this length. And good on them because, like, all the other true crimes we've done, the police just kind of fucking give up after a while. These guys just checked every single little nook and cranny until they got this person. Well, I mean, even at the end of this documentary that we watched, it was uh, Crime Investigation Australia. One of the detectives that was on the case and they were interviewing them for the documentary, they were like, this is still like the best case that I've been on for the investigation part of it because no stone was left unturned. Mm. Everyone was doing their part and was really thorough and it was a good team to be like looking into it, I guess. But yeah, so they did have like two clues. Yeah, and this is what I love with every true crime that we've covered. Once you get a few clues that like are actually together. leading to um like who it could truth, be, yeah. it just it's like a domino effect and it just we get to where we need to be. Yeah. So one person saw that there was a man with an olive complexion and really stocky sitting in a park on a bench that was opposite the Thorn residence like a few like days before the kidnapping and about three weeks before the kidnapping as well, uh, Frida had told police that, oh, a man with a funny accent, he was kind of olive complexioned and he was quite stocky, knocked on the door and was asking for this Mr. Bogner person but I've never heard of them or anything like that and then he just went away and I think the most helpful clue that they got was from a man named Cecil I couldn't get his last name I forgot it he told that there was a dark blue Ford custom line like a 1955 dark blue Ford and it was parked 100 meters away from the Thorns home the morning of the kidnapping and he thought it was strange he was like if you watch this doco he's like why not park like 20 meters down the rest of the road because in Australia, we have those like white lines when you turn mm. across, like turn onto a street, and if someone's parked like near the white line, you're pretty shitty. Yeah, because the way that they'd parked, it was kind of like a T intersection, mm. and they'd parked right opposite where like Cecil was driving straight to turn left or right, and that car was right in the way. Mm. So he took a lot of notice, and he noticed the person in the car. Yeah, yeah, and due to Cecil giving 
the police that detailed, like, make and look at the car that he saw, they knew what they were looking for and they actually went to, like, the transport records in Sydney and they looked through over 270,000 cards of cars that were in, like, Sydney or even... New South Wales or Just all of New South Wales and around the country. They ended up finding 5,000 1955 dark blue Ford custom lines. Yeah. And they looked... They found every single car and interviewed every single owner that they could. Yeah. And also to make sure that this Cecil guy knew what he was talking about with cars because they wanted to make sure because they were like, oh, like he was very specific with his car, like with the description. So to make sure they took him out that night. So nighttime, not a lot of lighting and drove him down streets and were like, all right, what's this car? What's this car? What's this car? And every time he said the like make and model like perfectly and they checked it and they were correct. So then they were like, oh, he knows his shit about cars. Let's trust him. Yeah. And then there was another breakthrough the day after the kidnapping when they found Graham's school suitcase in Sydney, like on the other side of Sydney Harbour. Yeah. So the next day, several hundred police officers are now out scouting the bushland for any more clues as to where Graham could be. There was also Navy helicopters, Army commandos, police skin divers. We had to double-check this because we thought they said skim. Yeah. But they are skin drivers. Uh, divers, sorry. Drivers. <laughs> Sniffer dogs and even local kids. Like they looking. had everyone out looking. And then again, now there's reports of sightings of Graham from all over Australia, still coming into the station, all eventually still being discounted. Um, Police ended up calling the Thorn household. No, people. Oh, people, sorry. Yeah, people, shitty people. Oh, very shitty people were calling the Thorn household and police saying that they did have Graham, but they don't want the £25,000. They wanted 5000 Or like making up random numbers for ransom. Basil. Smart, smart man. What a fucking father. (laughs) was asking these people questions that only Graham knew about. And obviously because they didn't have Graham, they couldn't answer it. So then they just like hung up. Yep. Because all they wanted was money, which they are the worst kind of people because this family, their kid is missing Mm. and these people just want their money. Like absolutely ridiculous. So, But it's like crazy to think Mm. like $100,000 back then was a lot and now it can't even buy your fucking house in this day. (laughs) Like, it can't buy a house in this day and age. Like, that's like a tenth of the way to a house. Pretty much. And that's just basic. Yeah. Um. So, on August 16th in 1960, about seven weeks after the kidnapping, there were a few kids playing in it's a like park. A, it was like a... um. What's the word I'm looking for? It was a lot. It was like a, a like a lot that hadn't been built on yet. So there was yeah. like overgrown grass and rocks. And, and they treated it like a playground because there was like a overhanging rock. Yeah, that you could like play And on. sadly, one of the boys in like underneath the rock cavern, that the word I'm looking for, I don't know. There's like a gap between a rock, the rock like and two, the... Like a rock and a ground. Yeah. Uh, sadly, one of the boys found a rug that was like bundled up in that cavern and he went to his mum to say, we found something. The mother said, hold up, like, wait, get away from it. We'll wait. Wait till your dad gets home. Which, like, I understand back in those days. Mm. Like, let them check it. So when the dads came back, they went to check and sadly they had found... Graham's body. Graham's body. And the autopsy revealed that Graham had a fractured skull and the cause of death was either um, he got 
beaten to death or he was strangled or a combination of both. Fucked up. Yeah. And so when the police were on their way to the Thorn residence to let them know that they'd found Graham's body, Frida had just found out on the TV, on which, the news. Which made me think about um, when, I don't know, like if I can use this uh, reference, but it reminded me of when Kobe Bryant passed away and his wife found out through TMZ. Like Before the, before the police like, would even let, let her know. Let the fucking police do their job and tell them. Like, it's a shit job. Like, I've got a mate who's a police officer and yeah. he said, it. like, it's, he doesn't want to do it. Like, it'd be the hardest thing to do. Yeah. And it would be. I, and we I, see and the ads on TV yeah. and it looks shit. And I also, I understand that, like, the news would have wanted to let everyone know because everyone was really invested into finding Graham because they were all wanting to find him and know that he was okay. So but, I understand letting the public know, but yeah, they but, should have waited until... And waited until the parents waited knew. Waited a couple of hours at least. Yeah. It's just shit when it's like that. Yeah. Like, there's, there's just a lack of respect. Yeah. And that's why I hate the media. Yeah. Sometimes. Sometimes they can be all right. I know. Most of the time, they're pretty shit. That's why I don't watch the news, though. It's always depressing. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no happy news. I know. Um, and, yeah, in this documentary, there was the one detective, I can't remember what his name was, but he was getting, like, really emotional mm. um, and, like, was crying. And this is when this uh, episode aired. It was, like, 40 was, years later. Yeah. And he was, yeah, like, crying. And he was saying, like, he was so involved with the family because he was – spending, you know, pretty much all day and all night with them. Yeah, he and would you hardly to, go to his own home yeah, and he would you have to call to his wife saying, sorry, I can't come home no, tonight. He couldn't. Or he couldn't even call his wife and was just spending all this time trying to find Graham. So he said that they got quite close as a whole unit of people. Mm, like you need to think in this time there's no like cell Telstra phone booth on the street or something. There's no cell phones, there's no nothing. So he's explaining like how do you tell your wife that you're not going to be home for seven weeks because this has happened. Yeah. It's it was rough. And but this like now the police are so determined to find this killer that they took Graham's body to like their scientific division as they were calling it. I'm pretty sure it now it's forensics. forensics. Yeah. Where they found some hairs that belonged to a Pekingese dog. Yep. Which is lim- which limited their field of suspects and they were going all out on this. They even took him to a botanist. Yeah, because there was some, like, plant matter and then, like, to a geologist because there was some soil. soil and, and then the rug that he was wrapped in, they mm. went to the maker of this rug, like, the producer of it, in Adelaide. Yeah. Like, they went so specific. Okay, yeah. So, they found two types of plant matter on the rug that one was both typically found in a garden. One was, like, common, but one was very rare. So, it was... Unusual to see both, both of these together. When they took... Oh, Lotus is going off. <laughs> when they took them to the geologist, they found out that the soil that was on him was like a pink building soil. Yeah, which is very specific again. Very specific again. And then the botanist ended up telling them the plants because yeah. they figured out which ones it was. And also at the same time, a neighbour told police that a dark blue 1955 Ford Custom line had moved moved that day. Yeah, so their neighbour had this car, but they moved 
the day that Graham was kidnapped. And his name was Stephen Leslie Bradley. It's this thing with fucking three named people. <laughs> like, yeah, don't trust them, right? <laughs> don't trust them. And so the police were told that Bradley's uh, wife and three kids left the home that morning in a taxi, but Bradley stayed inside the home, didn't even go outside to say goodbye to their like his family. And so then the police went to his workplace where they found out his, uh, uh, he was Hungarian and he was born in Budapest and then he migrated to Australia in 1950, changed his name and he married his second wife, Magda. Mm. So that gives him the European accent. Yeah. And he was also a stocky man with olive complexion. He's fitting the description yeah. very, very well. So he admitted that he'd sold his house and they, and that, He was moving on the 7th of July to a flat in Manly um, and he also admitted that he was was selling his car to a dealership but he was waiting on the removalist to grab the furniture before they could leave this particular house. And that day he just spent the day home alone and the car was in the garage all day. So no one could confirm his alibi because he was by himself all day. Did we mention where the body was found? Yes. Seaforth? Oh, we didn't say the suburb. Yeah, so the body was found in Seaforth. Seaforth? Seaforth. Yeah. And here's the funny thing. He said, like, he's moving to Manly. Which was right next. It's yeah, like it's the, the pretty suburb much the over. Like the next suburb over. We looked at it. Mm. We're like. How far away is it? How far away is it from Bondi to Seaforth? Because <laughs> it, it was traffic that day we looked. It was like a 40-odd minute drive. And I'm like, that's odd. But then when we hear that he's moving to Manly, I'm like, oh, that makes yeah. total sense now. So, yeah, so the police traced the rug back to Adelaide where it was produced and then to to the specific store that it was, like, sold at in Melbourne, mm. which then tied them directly to the Bradleys. Because yeah, because an associate of Mrs. Bradley was traced down and interviewed where he admitted that the rug was identical to the one that he had given to Mrs. Bradley as a gift for the birth of one of her children. Yep. And then... Um, this is, as I said before, this is where the, the geologists and the botanists came back with what type of plants they were looking for and the type of house and soil that they were looking for. Yeah. And also, um, they found, uh, mold on Graham's shoes, like Mm. on the bottom, that was several weeks old, leading them to believe that he was killed, like not that long after he was kidnapped. Yeah. So they'd been looking for him, thinking he was alive for all these weeks, Mm. but he'd been dead already. The police now are going on a street search for these particular plants, the pink sand mortar, and, like, everything that they're really looking for to when a postman points them directly to the house and says, I've seen this before. It's that house there. Mentions that they have moved. They've just recently moved. Police get to the house, find out that the owner... It was Stephen Bradley's house. Only one problem, though. Bradley's had already left the country. Yep. He had gotten on, like, a ferry or a cruise. It was a a ship. You can't get a ferry from Sydney to London. Oh, I don't know. Back (laughs) in those days. They said a ferry. Can't get a ferry from Sydney to London. Well, a cruise ship. Let's say cruise ship. It was just a ship. It's just a ship. I don't give a shit. Dear Lord. All right. Whatever. (laughs) Arguing like a married couple. Was the Titanic a ferry? No, that was a ship. The cruise ship. That's not a cruise ship. It was just a ship. Uh, and Dear they also Lord. said it was unsinkable too. So you're lucky you're sitting across the table. <laughs> <laughs> There's enough room on that door. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. So early October 1960, 
the police had now had a strong connection between Stephen Bradley and the murder of Graham. But as we said, Bradley and his family had already boarded a ship heading to London. Uh, the police investigated his old garage and discovered some old camera film that they take to forensics to get cleaned up. On the film is photos of, of Stephen and his family sitting on the rug identical to the one that Graham was wrapped in. It was also found out that he did own a Pekingese dog as well, that he left with a veterinarian to transport the dog to him overseas. Like, it was just all these mm. points connect straight to him. The police also tracked down the Ford Custom line that they were looking for, and when they looked in the boot or trunk <laughs> of the car, they found hair and fibres that were from Graham, from his clothes and from his hair. his hair, confirming Bradley is the one that they were looking for. Yeah. Now, here's the cool thing. This is what I love, because it was like we're leaving no stern unturned. Yeah. Police alert the captain of the ship who ends up keeping an eye on Bradley, and once they land in Colombo, which is now Sri Lanka, uh, Stephen is imprisoned but sends his family on to London until they can work out a treaty to send him back to Australia. Yeah, because there wasn't any treaty between, like, Sri Lanka and Australia at the time, so it took weeks until the 18th of October when Stephen was then sent back to Australia. Mm. And uh, the detectives didn't... Full, like they didn't sleep at all on that long flight because they were keeping like a close eye on him and he was handcuffed and very talkative apparently. Yeah, very, very talkative. And when they ended up getting back to Sydney, before the plane landed, he confessed that he did it. Yeah. Which but will then, make me very angry soon. <laughs> so then two days after landing in Australia, Bradley's put into a police lineup where Frida confirms that, oh, yep, that's the guy that knocked on the door asking for that guy. And Cecil also says, oh, yeah, that was the guy that was parked weirdly in the intersection. Mm, And Basil pointed him out too. Because he'd noticed him as well around the area. mm, Frida and Basil refused to put a hand on him. Like, good for them. Good for them because it would, if it was me, I probably would have punched the guy in the face. Yeah, because that was the thing. Like, the detectives were like, they didn't want to harm him. And they were like, we were surprised because, like, we wanted to. Mm. But they couldn't, obviously. Yeah. Um. So, on the 22nd of November, 1960, the inquest begins and all the evidence is just too convincing for Stephen and he's put to trial. And uh, Stephen's wife and the kids were brought back to Australia. Where Stephen's wife was used as a defence witness. So stupid. Which is, yeah, so stupid. So in March of 1961, the trial of the century in Australia begins as Bradley pleads not guilty to the murder. Yeah, I'm like, you confessed to it like six months earlier. This is what I asked you because I know, or it could just be movies, I don't know, but a lot of the time, like, I know criminals would obviously get a plea deal. And if they go, if you plead guilty, they'll like do this Lower to your sentence. Sen- Lower your sentence. And in Bradley's case, I'm like, why wouldn't you just plead guilty? I don't think they give those options for people that kill children, though. I think it's just uh, like well, I don't give a shit crimes. because all the evidence is just it's so convincing that it's you. And it was like laughable that he was like, oh, I didn't do it. Yeah, like. Like we were, we were laughing in the documentary because we were like, "Is he serious? Is like, he that stupid?" Oh, hundred percent, he's that <laughs> fucking stupid. Um, and yeah, and during the trial, like in court, he seemed really calm, unfazed, 
unflustered while listening to all of this evidence against Mm. him. So it was an eight-day trial and he was, of course, found guilty of the kidnapping and murder of Graham, which, like, as soon as the judge gave the verdict, everyone cheered. And I, if this judge was still alive, I don't think they are, I would high-five him, give him a hug, whatever, buy him a beer. Because he allowed this cheering to continue because he knew how the town and everyone in Australia knew like, he knew how they felt and he just let it go. Yeah, because the detective says that he had been, um, like, on another case or whatever and this judge was, like, a real hard ass. Mm. And that's kind of like you don't cheer in court or, like, you don't, you know, make noise or whatever. Yeah. But they were like, he understood what this meant for everyone. Yeah. Um, And so Stephen was sentenced to life in prison and in 1968 he died of a heart attack in prison. At age 43. He... He served seven years of that sentence. I don't care. Justice I mean, served. I, well, true. Justice served and he died painfully. Yeah. Um. And the police believe that he wasn't alone in the planning or committing of the crime, but there's no evidence connecting anyone else to the crime. And as soon as they said that, I was like, oh, 100% his wife was in on it. Yeah, because why would his wife come back and be a defense witness? Yeah. Like, if you were the wife of this person, you'd... I would... I would help the police and give them evidence and be like, oh, come look. Yeah. Oh, come look, look at, at what this dickhead did. Yeah, come look at look what this fuckwit left. Like, come on. This guy's an oh, idiot. He, oh, did he, like, which rug did he, like, wrap the body in? Oh, here's pictures of us on the beach mm. in the rug, like, with the rug. Look what he did. She makes me angry. Yeah. <laughs> and sadly, there's no evidence, so we can't connect her to yeah. it. And it's... Cool to learn because this is the second Aussie crime we've covered where a law has been changed. After this, uh, the law has changed that for lottery winners, they are no longer published to the public that they have won. So their names, addresses and everything is kept a secret, which is how it should be. Yeah. Because shit like this could happen. Exactly. But I mean, they didn't think it would happen at like when oh. they were doing it. And then yeah. now that this happens, they were like, oh, got to change that. Mm. Oh, it's just crazy. You'd never think that would happen. But obviously now with our tats lotto, it's like, oh, win 60 million. And if the only reason you know someone who like is in your family or a family friend or a friend has won it, you wouldn't see them anymore. <laughs> They'd be living in a different country. I know my old man's like, if I won that money, I'd, I'd be pack my bag, see you later. I'm never coming back. We were talking about it the other day. I think I was talking about it with my mum because mm. like my pop was buying a bloody lottery ticket or something and was wondering what the prize was even though we'd already bought the ticket Mm. um and i was like if i won i was like i would not be telling a soul i would be acting like nothing is different oh i'd be moving to another country i would not i'd be like see ya no i'd I'd, I'd just travel the world yeah like the whole time never work again (laughs) what a life but yeah so sad story but at least we have an answer and kind of a happy ending. That and a happy ending that a law was changed and mm. that his murderer died. Uh, now you just get the suburb of where someone might have won, I'm pretty sure. Which is probably still shit. You probably shouldn't say what suburb it is. But I mean, back then, then they didn't think anything of it. Like mm. they literally didn't hide bloody anything. Nah. Yeah, crazy. Australian true crime. It gets crazy. Yeah. But at least like. Especially with the Port Arthur one, like the gun laws changed, and now this the lottery yeah. winners law changed. Like at least we act on it. Yeah, exactly. Not trying to throw shade at anyone. 
My bad. Whoops. Oh, well. Anyway, that has been us. Happy to be back in 2024, even though it's dimmed down a little. But honestly, up to this, it's been nice. Like the break that we're having. Mm. It's been really nice. Like I've had less stress. And obviously we got to uh, like uh, find more things on this. Like obviously I wasn't going to give any information on Stephen Bradley because fuck him. Yeah, no, he doesn't deserve like, it. Doesn't deserve our attention. But like if you want to figure out who he was and why he did it, like look it up, honestly. Or yeah. you can just listen to us and hear what we just said. But um, it's nice. Yeah, and... What we're doing next in February, like now we've got all this time to make sure we can deliver the the best content that we can. And we've also got something coming up that's pretty exciting, which hush, hush, (laughs) secrets. But um, yeah, thank you. If you're still sticking with us, we appreciate it. As always, if you want to like follow us on anything, uh, Instagram, uh, Better Watch Horror Pod. Uh, TikTok. BWH pod. Yeah. No more Twitter. No more Twitter. We discontinued it because yeah. we don't know how to use it. <laughs> and it's just too difficult. And like so many people that like we follow are like, yeah, we're just not even bothering with Twitter anymore. Mm. Um, we also have our Patreon. Yes. Better Watch Horror. Which, and YouTube as well. Better Watch Horror. Yes. Which we, well, once we have time. We're going to be posting more on, on Patreon. Patreon. We're excited. First reactions. We're excited to do them again. I'm excited to do them again. There's a whole, I'm looking at it. There's a whole shelf here of movies that I just kept buying that we haven't seen. Yep. And it keeps filling up, but it never like dumbs down. So I've stopped myself this year from buying new horrors until most of these are watched. can get through some of them. Mm. And being that it's on Patreon, we will get to show you all the gory stuff that we react to if it's a gory horror film. So. And I don't have to bloody cut them down to like less than five seconds no we can show as much as we want yeah a bit more freedom uh i think one i'm excited for is an aussie film Mm. that we are covering sometime this year that i really want to do a first reaction for the director actually follows us and when i found out that this movie was under like the umbrella monster fest oh yeah like um thingo they do Bought it straight away. It is sitting here and I cannot wait to watch it and cover it <laughs> because I've seen the trailer and I've seen photos. It looks so messed up, so gory, and I can't wait. Oh, yeah, I think I know the one you're talking about. Yeah, we'll we'll get to it when we get to it. Yeah. Anyway, that has been us. Thank you because you could have been listening to any other horror podcast out there, but you chose to listen to us and we appreciate you. We love you. And as always... We'll see you next time. Bye.